0: Welcome to Shelter in Place, a podcast about finding daily sanity in a world that feels increasingly insane. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. My family and I are taking the day off today, heading off to find a beach with no people. It's been a tough week and we all need a break, a chance to refresh and start over in this life we're all still figuring out. So today, I wanted to share with you a story about another time in my life when I was sheltering in place, though under very different circumstances. The story I'm about to tell you is a true one. My husband, Nate, and I penned it together. Chased by the Muse Sing, Muse, of the anger of Odile, the storm that wrought vengeance on homes and men, which caused such misfortune for voyagers and natives. Heartless laying waste the towns of Baja del Sur, setting in motion the adventure that befell our heroes. One, no one is going anywhere, he says. You will sleep here tonight. The hotel manager speaks first in English, then in Spanish. We've been confined in this windowless basement conference room for a few hours, and already everyone looks tired. My husband reaches for my hand, a tenderness he hasn't lost in 11 years of marriage. We were supposed to spend this last night in Mexico at a cliffside restaurant, watching the sunset over the wine-dark sea. Instead, we claim a spot in the corner. We sleep on the floor, packed in like teeth. Hotel staff stand by to make sure no one escapes. Outside, a dragon roars, an ocean overrunning the land. These are not elements, but gale winds and perilous waves, a malevolent, merciless force. As the eye of the hurricane approaches, our ears pop, the doors groan, and the storm crashes with Poseidon's wrath. We lay beside strangers, 150 light bulbs radiating heat. The power flickers, and the air conditioner stutters to a stop, like the building exhaling its final breath. 2. Before basement shelters and blackouts, before disappointment and dreams rained out, i hope to catch the muse in mexico we've been playing cat and mouse for years but lately our game is tired or maybe just distracted some days i forget my own age i keep track only by looking back at flags in the sand four years since i quit my day job to write two years since we became parents five months since our daughter's birth this is the first trip we've taken without them our plane leaves san francisco I tell myself that we deserve this escape, but even my inner monologue is unconvincing. Not since our honeymoon have we sprung for the fancy hotel, the postcard-worthy ocean view, the passport stamp for the sole purpose of enjoyment. Before we had kids, we spent a year in the Philippines, a whole country of people who, except for a tiny, wealthy minority, will never see their homes growing smaller from an airplane window. People who have the word vacation in their language, but not in their vocabulary. We've been stateside long enough to take potable water and hot showers for granted. But that year in Manila still marks us. We, along with everyone else earning over $47,500 per year, are part of the global 1%. I can never get comfortable with this reality, can never quite balance the skills tipped in my favor. Now I quiet my inner turmoil with whispers of how good this will be for our marriage, for our parenting, for my writing, which has settled into milk-crusted stagnancy ever since our daughter was born. My husband, whose faith in me is unshakable, suggested this trip both as an overdue anniversary celebration and a break from the frantic monotony of the everyday. I just need a little time away. One good idea. A diamond amidst the grains of sand. This is a story of finding the muse in the eye of a hurricane. A story of being lost in a foreign land. A story of coming home. Three. We arrive at the West End Friday afternoon and are greeted with green margaritas and a cerulean sea. I feel something inside slowly unwind, like a loosened screw popping out and rolling into the furniture. I can't remember the last time I felt so relaxed. No little voices calling, no tiny fingers tugging, no one needing me. The forecast says sunshine, heat in the 90s, and a chance of thunderstorms on Sunday. The rain seems incidental. We'll sit on our balcony and read. It's Saturday afternoon before we hear the first mention of the hurricane. You might get a little wet, says a man trying to sell us a snorkeling package. Sunday morning, the sky is crowded with clouds. A few hours later, our Monday flight home is canceled. A memo slides under our door requesting all guests to assemble. We follow a bellhop through the hotel's intestines, dank back hallways, and concrete stairwells. Already the elevators are shut off. Somewhere below, 150 guests sit in a room meant for a few dozen. There's an empty bottle of vodka on a table, and the anxious hum of extroverts recounting other storms they've weathered. Most people slump against a wall, their faces glowing smartphone blue. No one looks like they're on vacation. And then it hits me. We no longer are. Four. We're still in denial when we are ushered down the hall to a conference room turned shelter with lounge chair mats and white bedding tiling the floor. We're compliant, but wonder if the hotel staff are being excessively cautious. Unable to see the storm, we feel curiously uninvolved, like overhearing a neighbor's TV. The hurricane's rumble gradually rises above what the fan next to us can drown out. A wind symphony whooshes and booms beyond the reinforced basement door, and for the first time, I wonder if we are safe. At midnight, nearby guests break up the Captain Morgan and a deck of cards, and the hotel manager shakes his head when I ask if he's going to turn off the lights. We don eye masks, but even with earplugs, it's like trying to sleep inside a drum. When I finally dream... I am fleeing the muse, a blue-haired goddess whose watery fingers wet the back of my shirt. I wake up gasping in the dark and have no idea where I am. Five. The morning after, it's quiet. Did you sleep? I yawn. I can tell without turning that my husband is awake. It could be worse, he says. The honeymooning couple beside us never even got to see their room. Water drips from the ceiling in the service hallway, and workers squeegee puddles into an elevator shaft. The liquid air is hot and thick, worst in the dining room, an airless cluster of tables where sternal lamps heat meals that we consume by flashlight. Spaghetti, steamed broccoli, and yogurt miraculously appear three times a day from a flooded kitchen. Later, when we hear about other hotels serving only rice and beans, we will be grateful. But right now, it feels like a journey to the underworld. En route to the bathroom, we pass employees radiating the odors of sweat never dried. Most of them have been working all night. We see in their faces the worry over their families and homes. Stories with the endings torn out. Six. After almost 24 hours inside, time is meaningless. Existence reduced to a Sisyphean cycle of sweaty pallets, bathroom trips, and flashlit meals. Strangers talk spontaneously, as if our reasons for coming here might return us to our vacation. A woman with a gray-ash voice asks us what we're in for. Before we can answer, she says, at least in prison you can shower. Twice a day, the hotel manager dispenses bad news. We feel both resentment and sympathy for our warden. Every room is destroyed, he says. No one can leave. There are no flights going out of Cabo. Airplanes are belly up. The control tower is down. The hotel driveway is a landslide. Cars, windowless wrecks. We have lost that most basic of modern privileges, our freedom. We compare our situation to Manila, where we worked for a nonprofit that assisted prostituted women who lived under corrugated metal shacks and neighbors' scornful stares. There is freedom, and then there is freedom. Our captivity seems melodramatic by comparison, but it doesn't stop us from feeling trapped. We are prisoners with an indefinite sentence. Seven. There are five categories for hurricanes— most of the buildings here were built to withstand Categories 1 and 2. At its peak, Odile was a 4, the largest hurricane in history to hit the Baja Peninsula. No one was ready for something this big. On the second day, the staff unbarricaded the door to let us out into a 20-yard section of walkway. The sky hangs like a low gray carpet, but it's glorious, fresh air. Then we take in what used to be the courtyard— Palm trees beheaded or toppled, branches and stucco shards strewn, the hallway ceiling gaping like Swiss cheese. We see sky where our room used to be. 125-mile-per-hour winds shattered ocean-facing balcony doors, tore out walls, and left sodden bedding hanging over railings like failed suicides. I wish they'd let us walk on the beach, I say, my arms sweating against my husband's. I never even got to feel the ocean. Eight. 48 hours pass in Hades. Societal norms dissolve. A few men walk around shirtless, and one girl lies on her pallet in her swimsuit, a hurricane parody of sunbathing. You'll sleep here again tonight, the hotel manager says. A baby cries as if in understanding, and his mother turns her face into his soft little neck. Other guests release what lurks inside. A broad-shouldered blonde mutters about the government cutting Wi-Fi and cell phone reception to contain the panic. An angry tea kettle of a man spouts about the lack of information we've been given, while a brunette woman with a neat sphere of hair invites us to pray. Monday is Mexican Independence Day, and a brief moment of generosity or shrewd morale-boosting The staff serve free beer and sparkling wine from behind a plywood bar, and we toast, Viva Mexico! The sound of popping corks is shorthand for civilization. We wait in line for three hours to take five minute showers in the spa. Right before my husband gets a turn, the assistant manager says that the spa is closed. But that's ridiculous, I seethe. He's the only one who didn't get to go. My husband has been wearing his sweat-soaked clothes for two days, but he shakes his head at me, embarrassed. I lay on my little mat in the dark and lock up the beast I let escape. I wonder how much longer I can keep it in check. Nine. Even with three meals a day, I am hungry all the time. I left my nursing daughter at home with my in-laws, and my one tie to her is pumping five times a day, as if I'm feeding her memory or her future, so we can snap back into place when I return. The first day, I pump in the bathroom, where I can tell by the tone of comments which other women are mothers, which are not. By the second day, when the toilets no longer flush and the bathrooms are lit by sinkside candles and glow sticks, I sit in the corner of the conference room with a towel draped over my chest, while a few feet away, the thwarted honeymooners try not to stare. I ask the Mexican family with the baby if they want my milk. They either don't understand or are not interested. Not that I blame them. I am Penelope knitting her shroud, undoing the work as quickly as I complete it. Five times a day, I pour the creamy liquid down the drain. Ten. There is no talk of release, but two doctors among us make a list of who should be first out. A list we won't be on families, the elderly, the medically urgent. For the diabetic who will run out of insulin tomorrow, waiting is a matter of life and death. But for us, it's not the waiting that kills us, but the not knowing when. We tell ourselves that it could be worse. We're captive here, but not kidnapped. This is the Weston, not ISIS. Our heads are safely on our shoulders. We read our own books, then read each other's. The first time I met my husband, he told me he loved East of Eden, my favorite book. He might as well have said that it was me he loved. He understood that storytelling is what life is made of. But by Monday evening, something curious happens. Our treasured book discussion, the river that has kept us voyaging each other's minds for years, becomes dammed up. The very act of speaking is difficult we have been physically confined for two days, but now it's our thoughts that can't get out. Eleven, a helicopter flies overhead and we erupt into the kind of cheering usually reserved for Super Bowl touchdowns. Several military planes flew out today, the hotel manager says. People are going home. See, says the sphere-haired woman from beside us, prayer works. But the details are less shiny up close. 30,000 tourists are stranded on the Baja Peninsula, and no one knows how many planes are leaving or who is getting on them. Those on the doctor's list will take a bus to the airport. They might go home today or not. Then the manager announces that people with undamaged cars may go if they sign a waiver. We bless our last-minute decision to put our car in the garage when we hear about the fleet of wrecked rentals on the surface lot. In the early hours of the storm, we'd tried calling Alamo and been told that we should call the local office. By then, there was no local office. After being caged for three days, we twitched with the possibility of release. We could venture into the ravaged unknown of the post-Hurricane Peninsula or stay here, where our misery is predictable. Supposedly, we have provisions for 10 days, but already water is being rationed, one small bottle with lunch. Are we crazy to go? You're actually considering staying, my husband replies, and I realize I'd rather go anywhere with him than stay here and let my fate be determined by strangers. We offer our backseat to other guests, but no one else is tempted. Guests whose names we never learn express concern. We wave goodbye, pilot our suitcases around piles of rubble, and cast off. Twelve. Driving away, we are exuberant, free. But the sight of capsized telephone poles and ravaged buildings wears on us, making us second guess. The town is thrashed, thousands of lives flattened overnight. It takes over an hour to pass through Cabo. The street is lined with parked cars, displaced bits of beach, and locals pushing shopping carts stacked with toilet paper, dog food, and flats of ramen. Old men drag crates of water and sheets of plastic. Kids cart coolers of ice. Some still flat-screen TVs that will sit dark for weeks, but mostly there's logic to the looting. Meat that will rot if left in powerless stores, water and ice for survival— if it were our home, our children, we would do the same thing. We don't have a map, and most of the street signs are down. Our smartphones are useful only as calculators and flashlights. We haven't been able to communicate with anyone for days, and we wonder now, does the world even know what happened? There isn't a single working gas station on the two-hour drive north to La Paz. We eat the last of our snacks, sip our water cautiously, Eye the fuel and temperature gauges. We creep around washed out sections of road, pop up sand dunes, power lines hanging like tangled yarn. We tell ourselves we were right to leave. We imagine getting on a plane, holding our kids. But when we reach La Paz, it's just a variation on the theme. Power is out, and the few open stores are running on generators. We are out of pesos, credit cards are useless. An ATM's muerto. The airport is a human feedlot. Hundreds of people standing, looking lost. We see no employees, no counters to buy tickets, no lists to put our names on. We drive around and around in the dark, looking for food and shelter, making constant U-turns at downed trees and power lines. Tired and hungry, we are lab rats failing the experiment. At last, we find a hotel with vacancies, but inside, the clerk shakes his head, no. After seeing our panic, he relents, takes 54 of our dollars, and warns us that there is no light, AC, Wi-Fi, or hot water. It's still 90 degrees two hours after sundown, so we relish cold showers by the light of our phones. We open the window and lie sweating on top of the sheets, trying to think cool thoughts. We say, we're lucky we're safe. We say, at least we're together. We try to mean it. Thirteen. The next morning, we stock up at Walmart, an oasis in a desert of shuttered sh- shop fronts. Back home, we shun big box stores, but without this place, we'd be doomed. We walk the wide bright aisles, attempting a survival checklist, and struggle to accept that we may need this entire cartful of food, water, extra shirts, underwear, and beach mats destined for an airport floor. When we tell him that we're trying to call our families, the store manager walks us across sun-broiled parking lots and gives us his own coins to try three different payphones, none of which works. Back at the airport, hundreds more refugees have materialized, a sea of curbside humanity. Without technology, A new oral tradition is born as travelers pass along wisps of hearsay, ideas for escape. Military flights are going out. Or people have been waiting since yesterday and nothing's happened. People are flying here from Cabo. Or Cabo is a complete wreck. There's another hurricane coming, so you better get out. Or unless you have a printed ticket, you can't get out. We sift through stories, searching for the truth. Fourteen. Finally, a reliable narrator, a reporter who came over on a ferry from Mazatlan. It's a long ride, but no one is flying out here, he says, gesturing at the crowd. It's enough to convince us. But the ferry terminal is only slightly less chaotic. As we wait in line, people flood through the door. We can't pay with a credit card. We don't have $220 in cash, and the ferry isn't going to Mazatlan, but to Topolobompao, a town we've never heard of. But, a ferry employee says, you can put your name on a list. You may be able to pay with a credit card on the other side. Conspicuously absent is the promise of actually getting a seat. But we get in another line anyway, where a woman writes down credit card numbers, rubber bands, bundles of IDs, and drops them into an envelope we will allegedly see when we debark, if we get on. When we get to the front of the line, the woman asks us if we're taking our car. We worry about rental car drop fees, $800 we hear. We could return the car in La Paz, but bulk at giving up our last shred of autonomy. Or we could drive back to Cabo, where in theory our airline is obligated to get us home. Retracing our steps feels like giving up. We are not going back people. We don't plan to move back to where we grew up. If we travel, we go somewhere new. We rarely even watch the same movie twice. Only now do we wonder if this trait is our hubris. Fifteen. We decide to keep the car. The possibility of being stranded on the other side is the cyclops we can't bear to face. Time, never one to march along in the tropics, feels stationary as we await our fate from the fairy gods and watch ticketed passengers board in droves what day is it? Wednesday? Two days after our scheduled return. My husband hasn't been able to communicate with his co-workers since before the storm, but sorry I can't come into the office feels oddly irrelevant in light of sorry I'm not sure how to get out of this country. We're still waiting, hoping the woman who holds our credit card hasn't forgotten us, when an elegantly dressed Mexican woman tells us she's spoken to the ferry worker and she's going to make sure that we get on board. Her own home in Cabo was destroyed. All around us, tourists grumble that they'll never come back to Mexico. But the Mexicans we've met, the Wesson staff who stayed up all night, the Walmart manager who gave us his own coins, and now this stranger taking us under her wing, have been gracious and hospitable, even as their lives have been torn apart. Sixteen. Ninety minutes later, the ferry worker waves us forward. We find seats in our first air-conditioned room in days and watch the Baja Peninsula recede behind us. I feel a swell of panic, like we've tied ourselves to the masthead of a ship we aren't supposed to be on. You think we're doing the right thing, I say. Doesn't matter. My husband's laugh is frayed and reckless. We're doing it. I look at pictures of our children on my phone. Before we left California, we couldn't wait to be without them. It was a luxury to sit in the exit row, to carry on small suitcases, to doze with no kids in our arms. Now we ache for them. And then, a miracle. In the middle of the Sea of Cortez, a body of water I didn't know about until today, a dozen texts bloom on my screen. The kids are fine. My mother-in-law sent pictures. No commercial flights are leaving Cabo. A friend says she's praying us home, asks what we need. Plane tickets, I reply, and a get-out-of-jail-free card with a rental car company. Most of my replies go through. Nearby passengers make frustrated sounds. It seems that I'm the only one getting service. It feels like a gift, a break in the clouds of ignorance. And then, just as quickly, it's gone. We venture topside to watch the day fade away, surrounded by blue. The land we were so hesitant to leave is lost behind us. Question marks loom ahead. Five hours south to Mazatlan? Ten hours north to Tucson? Fifteen hours northwest to Tijuana? But now there is just this. Golden sky and glittering sea. A toddler belly laughs as she takes overconfident steps into her father's waiting arms. Friends clown in silhouetted pictures. The sun winks into the ocean, and all of us who have been beaten down by nature at her worst share an exalted moment of nature at her finest. Seventeen, it is night when we reach land. We stand in a single line that wraps around an entire floor of the boat and assume the now familiar posture of waiting, an uncomfortable stance for time-treasuring Americans. Suddenly, we are so tired of it all. We introduce ourselves to a couple with a baby when we overhear that they're from the Bay Area just like us. They tell a story about a machete-toting man demanding their hotel's emergency rations, and I feel the swell of guilt in my throat. We've spent four days stumbling from one uncertainty to the next, bemoaning lost money and fun, but have escaped real danger. The relativity of suffering is a strange thing. Knowing that other people have it worse doesn't make our own discomfort better. And then silver linings turn to gold. Our cell phones once again become phones. And our new friend's father finds seats on a flight to San Jose. If we can drive his family, who returned their rental car in La Paz, to Mazatlan, he'll buy our tickets home. It takes another hour to pay our fare, but now that waiting is charged with promise. All around us are Mexican troops with faces like granite, preparing to reverse the same trip we just completed. We wonder if they have any idea what they are getting into, and then realize that we don't know what we've left behind. Eighteen, for all the hours we've spent with strangers, all the conversations and shared stories, we ask no one's name until now. Sarah and Travis and their baby girl squeeze into our back seat when we leave our hotel before sunrise. We ask about their jobs, what they like to do when they're not escaping a hurricane. But getting to know each other is an ancillary to our quest, and mostly we ride in silence. There's a part of me that wants to be asked about my novel or even our children, and glancing over at my husband, I can see his own inner monologue floating behind the great unsaid but we don't volunteer anything. Maybe we hold back to preserve personal space because for days we've had almost none. Maybe the only thing that matters now is getting home. We are nobody to each other, and yet we are everything. 19. Sinaloa is greener than we imagined, with aurora haze hanging over fields. Rosy-fingered dawn arrives and passes before we notice we're at half a tank. When we come to a toll booth, hours later, we are still 23 kilometers from Mazatlan. We ask the attendant how far to the nearest gas station. Mazatlan, he says. Do you think we can make it, we ask. He peers the dashboard, shrugs. We slow down, turn off the AC, and pretend it isn't in the 90s outside. Twenty protracted minutes later, we roll into a gas station, We fill up, decline a six-man car wash, and head to the airport, praying to the rental car gods as we go. We drop Sarah, Travis, and their baby off at the airport and drive to the rental car return. We find a shady spot and attempt to clean our filthy car with a 1.5-liter water bottle and a Walmart washcloth. We present our remaining food as a peace offering to the minor deity who controls our fate. "'Hola, Mr. Alamo Clerk. We're returning our car hundreds of miles on a ferry ride away from where we're supposed to. Want some canned goods?' His eyes widen, and then he smiles, impressed. He pulls up Facebook and shows us pictures of destruction. A slumped man surveying the collapsed roof and two cinder blocks that used to be his home. A woman holding a baby above her head as she piles her few belongings atop a soggy mattress a broken bridge, diving into a muddy river. We are still waiting to be asked for our credit card when the clerk tells us to have a nice trip. I think about my friend, our modern-day Athena, who is praying us home. 20. We order celebratory margaritas at an airport restaurant, check our phones, and wait to board. It's a different kind of waiting, the waiting of normal life, a relief. When our plane takes off, We hardly believe that we're going home except for the land passing beneath us. Below us, Mexico becomes smaller and smaller, a mass of memories under a blanket of clouds. An American guy next to us says that the U.S. media had been minimizing the damage in in Cabo and that the government didn't send enough help because they didn't know how bad things were. We don't say what we're thinking, how strange it is, That a government that can track our cell phones and tap our emails somehow doesn't understand that 30,000 of its citizens can't get home. 21. We've never been so happy to see the unnatural expanse of golf courses, tract homes, and industrial-strength rooftop air conditioners that is Phoenix. We spot a water fountain and take a big drink just because we can. Heading to customs, we call home and video chat with our kids. Our two year old son looks at us, wide eyed and serious, and then breaks into a grin and rattles off a collection of syllables that might be about Legos or his sister or the garbage man. Beside him, our baby girl giggles. Then the unbelievable happens again. The doors on the far side of the room close. Conversations crescendo, and the air swells with an unnamed panic. A security guard, stands on a chair and addresses us, her face a mask. The airport is on lockdown. There is a security situation. After all this, we're almost unsurprised. Every day feels like another punishment from the gods. While other passengers show impatience and irritation, the Cabo refugees are easily identifiable by their sunburnt brows, wrinkled clothes, and shell-shocked stares. Some flew through Mazatlan like us others through Mexico City or Tijuana or Monterey. Everyone has spent the better part of the week trapped in a room, a hotel, a country. The hours tick by. Airport workers hand out water, snacks, and toiletry kits, and our morale craters. We recognize this move. We've already played this game, and we didn't like the ending. Once again, we're trapped in the underworld. A customs official says, "'You poor people.'" We learn online that a man who attempted to shoot a cop is now loose in Sky Harbor. "'I can't believe this is happening,' a weather-worn man beside me says. "'I hope the cops kill him so we can finally go home,' a woman says loud enough for a dozen passengers around her to agree. "'I thought it was a car chase,' another says. "'I heard he's in our terminal. "'He made it through security with a gun? "'I heard they chased him through the parking lot. "'How hard can it be to catch one guy?' And then the doors open, there's a mass jolt of adrenaline, and we yank our rolling bags down the hall like dogs off leash. Upstairs in the terminal, it's a 500-person scavenger hunt. The prizes are finding which flights are still going out, where the new gates are, and who can get rebooked first. But we don't want any of them. We settle for a flight the next morning and a hotel room the airline won't pay for. We collapse into the most comfortable bed we have ever slept in, or perhaps we are just that tired. By now, lodging quality is almost irrelevant. There's no novelty anymore. It all blends into one mental slurry of not home. 22. My sister-in-law, a doctor, once said that the best feeling in life is relief from pain. Boarding the plane Friday morning, after a week of second-guessing, bleeding money, and missing home, I know what she means. During every part of this journey, we have been too afraid of the next Thunderbolt from above to let ourselves relax, until now. In the row behind us, a Mexican woman describes her last terrifying night in Cabo, how she barred her door against men with baseball bats and guns. Looting, raping, she says raping i think wondering if it means the same in translation she has just one small bag and does not plan on going back below us fog nestles in the santa clara mountains like seafoam on the shore and suddenly home is a simple thing a landscape below beckoning like an old wooden banister waiting for us to run our fingers along familiar grooves i wonder if for this woman it will ever be home 23. Sarah's parents are waiting for us at the San Jose airport. Her dad readies himself for a handshake, but I push in for a hug. Thank you is an inadequate phrase for someone who spent $1,200 to get two strangers home, but we say it anyway. Outside, I've never been so relieved and happy to see my father-in-law. When he pulls up, my husband runs down the sidewalk like he's 7, not 37, and hugs him. But his dad is focused on processing the immigrants. He gives his usual three-pat hug, not sensing the storm we're holding inside. This is the distance between survivors and outsiders. We need him to tell us with his arms that we are home, that it's over. But he had no way of knowing. With my mother-in-law, we didn't give her the chance. We just didn't let go. When at last we hold our dark-eyed children, they are warm and soft and smell like comfort. We had expected them to resent our absence, but even our son, who never wants to be cuddled, crawls into my lap and settles in for a story. We spend the weekend returning to everyday rhythms, folding laundry, changing diapers, officiating timeouts. We can almost pretend that our Mexican odyssey never happened except for the exhaustion embedded at the base of our necks and at the bottoms of our feet. We say we need a vacation from our vacation, but make no plans. It is enough to be home. 24. odeal Survivor Facebook groups sprout up. People claim PTSD, recount recurring nightmares, post aftermath pictures. Some waited in a mile-long line at the Cabo Airport without food, water, or shade, only to pay $600 to get out. Others took a 30-hour bus ride to Tijuana or went to the La Paz Airport and slept on the concrete. It's a litany of choose-your-own-adventures, most of which ended worse than ours. It's the first tangible affirmation we've had of the course we charted. People compare hotel or airfare refunds like boxers comparing SCARs. American and Alaska Airlines are refunding return tickets. United is hanging up on passengers who ask. Some of the resorts give full refunds. Ours sends us a voucher for one free night at the Westin in Cabo, a month after our return. Alamo charges our credit card, $480 with no explanation. But there are other stories of Mexican military who brought water to the sun-parched refugees, of La Paz locals who showed up with hot meals, of strangers now planning reunions. We wonder how many times we will tell our tale before we can lay it down, modern mariners groping for understanding through repetition. What do you think it means? My in-laws ask us. What does it ever mean when nature turns against you? I want to reply. Within days, Cabo disappears from the news. I search for signs of life after the media cycle, but mostly find reports of damage to celebrity homes and resorts scheduled reopening dates. Odile cost Mexico $1.1 billion and 15 lives. The surviving Cabo residents are an afterthought. I think about our first day in Mexico, when I stood on golden sand, looking for more than blue in the horizon, and asked myself why I bother telling stories I wanted to catch the inspiration that had eluded me. Instead, I was hounded, chased in a race I didn't win. And then as I tell my story once again, it hits me. The muse wasn't silent. She screamed in the winds of the hurricane, saying as we sailed across the Gulf, whispered under the airplane's white noise. Stories are not the stuff of fiction or fantasy. They are the stuff of life. They align disparate memories of shared moments, ask questions that don't have answers, pull meaning from the meaningless. Stories show us the monsters we can become or the heroes we can aspire to be. They give us a mass to cling to in the storm, a path to travel in the dark, and a map to find our way home. If you've enjoyed today's episode of Shelter in Place, I would love it if you could rate it and review it wherever you listen, share it with a friend, and subscribe. Shelter in Place is sponsored by Brick and Mortar and Delta Wines. Even in these tough times, this family business has stepped up to be the first sponsor of Shelter in Place. When you order wine from brickandmortarwines.com or winesforchange.com, you can get 10% off your order by using the promo code SHELTER. If you order six or more bottles from Brick and Mortar, you'll also get free shipping and overnight shipping in California. The Shelter in Place music was composed by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions. And the Shelter in Place artwork was created by Sarah Edgel. As always, you can find links to the things I mentioned in each episode in my show notes at laurajoycedavis.com. Until tomorrow, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis.